The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. Brian D. Estelle. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to meditate upon your word. Uh, We plead with you once again that you would open up our eyes to see uh, wonderful things uh, from your word. It is broader than all the heavens. And grant us that posture without which no one can understand truth, uh, especially from your word, namely having reverence and humility. We ask this for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. Uh, Would you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1? As you know, the faculty is doing a series uh, this semester entitled The Gospel in the Gospels. And a couple weeks ago, Professor Kim took us to Mark uh, chapter 2 for our uh, meditation this morning. I'd like to have you turn to Mark uh, chapter 1, the opening of Mark's gospel. We'll be focusing on the uh, end of the prologue. So, verses 9 and following. Uh, But for context, we'll read uh, from verse 1 and go up through verse uh, 15. This is God's very word. Give careful attention to it. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's the reading of God's word. Um, As we turn to uh, this prologue, which I take as going all the way up through verse 15 for reasons I won't go into this morning, um, we see that the Mosaic covenant cannot accomplish the promises of uh, the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, There must be a true son of Israel who will fulfill what Israel failed to do. The concept of the wilderness has attracted 20th century New Testament 
scholars primarily because of the parallel importance attributed to Isaiah 40 in both the New Testament and at Qumran. Uh, the cultural and religious context of Judaism has energized uh, this theme. The soil was prepared. The community at Qumran saw itself actually as the true Israel, preparing themselves for the eschatological denouement uh, in the desert. For Mark, the wilderness, where you can read desert, becomes a unifying theme throughout his prologue. The ideas are there in the cultural air as part of the manner in which people naturally generated metaphors in their communication. For the whole of Mark's gospel, the wilderness becomes absolutely key and central. Now, in the ancient Near East, often, it's a generality, but nevertheless, often the wilderness denotes a, uh, an abstract and non-local meaning, uh, like an uninhabited land. That's not the case for the New Testament writers. But I'd like to concentrate on what the symbolic sense of wilderness was for the gallery at hand here uh, when they were originally hearing this. Most commentators have assumed, as I mentioned, that Mark uh, prologue only goes up through verse 13. I think it goes up through 15 for reasons I won't state right now. But the prologue introduces this notion of away in the wilderness. And uh, often in the Old Testament, the wilderness was a place that evoked memories of testing, of tribulation, of afflicting, of murmuring and disobedience. That's not the case in Mark or in Mark's prologue, or I would suggest for this early community, or for the monastic-like communities that existed at Qumran. Rather, we know from history and from the extant evidence that for Qumran, the wilderness had a much more positive connotation than the Old Testament tradition. In Second Temple Judaism, the wilderness was a place where profound religious experiences and community were expected and possessed. Away in the wilderness possessed positive resonances. We know from Josephus, for example, he testifies to a popular expectation of a second Moses-like figure to appear at this time in the wilderness. Now, Mark has his own agenda, and he underscores the wilderness as a place of covenant making, an idea we don't have time to develop. But for the Israelites, the wilderness was a place where God singled them out as his people and made with them a covenant. But now, with the baptism of Jesus, and the approval of voice, the approbation of the Father on the beloved Son of God, God's voice is heard announcing the true Son of Israel who has come. Where Israel failed, Christ prevailed. Mark's prologue introduces John the baptizer's ministry in 1.4. As we read, so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. NIV, close quote. The desert region that Marx invokes is a deliberate disruption of the original text. We didn't have time to read it, but if we were to open our Bibles to Isaiah 43, that is chapter 40, verse 3, uh, we would find two words used for wilderness there, Midbar and Arava, which both refer in Isaiah 40 to the desert, a waterless region. 
and they're used in parallel to one another. But if you were looking carefully here at the prologue of Mark, what happens is he drops one of those terms in his quotation. He omits the latter term, arava. And what's he doing when he does this? Well, he's changing Isaiah 43. Now he's stressing the placing of John's ministry in the wilderness. And in contrast, by implication, he's reading also his past. So if we had read Isaiah 40, make straight the paths of our Lord, our God. But what Mark says is make straight his paths. Small words become huge conveyors of meaning. And what Mark does in changing it up, if you will, and in adapting uh, the quote from Isaiah 43, he shows Jesus in a messianic manner. Jesus is not tied to one place any longer. The motif of the wilderness and the wilderness trek now becomes the wilderness as a place where the voice of the Lord will be heard again. The symbol has triggered an updated meaning. The Jordan now becomes the place of new beginnings. Did you notice Mark 1, 9 to 12? The very waters that parted for Israel's original entry into the land are the very waters which now our common Lord is baptized in. And in a cantina of Old Testament texts influencing Mark's gospel here in the prologue, Jesus' baptism, as Mark narrates it, and the allusion to the voice in verses 10 to 11, is very likely a quotation from Isaiah 63, verse 19, or in the Masoretic text, uh, it is 63.19. In the English text, it's 64.1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. Now, why does Isaiah say that? Because you had all these promises, these glorious prophetic hopes in Isaiah 40 through 55, that God will make a new way, like the exodus of the Old Testament, but now there will be a new exodus. And it won't be out of Egypt, but it will be through the desert that he will cleft that apart and bring new revelation. And yet, when we get to the latter part of Isaiah, there's no doubt disappointment on people's part. Where are these promises? We do not see them coming to be. And so in 63.19, if this is genuinely allusion uh, to that text, which I think it is, then... What Mark is saying is the Messiah, the servant, has come and he has rectified all the unfulfilled promises. The upshot of all this for Mark is that Jesus is the answer to the great lament of those chapters of Isaiah. Christ has come in strength to announce Isaiah's long-awaited new exodus. Jesus is the one who reverses the judgment on Israel. Israel failed time and time again, but Christ prevails. What the Mosaic law could not accomplish because of man's condition, Christ does accomplish. It's well known that Mark, as the gospel, suppresses Jesus' identity as the divine son, of course, famously called the messianic secret. But what is Mark doing here? He's letting the secret out. Basically, as Joel Marcus puts it, by reference to Isaiah 63, in Mark 1, 9 to 11, Mark's community is let in on the vital secret. Jesus' baptism is the eschatological theophany that was foretold in the Old Testament 
and now it has occurred. The Messiah has come to answer and fulfill the promises that were told in Isaiah. The approbation from heaven announces to Mark's hearers that Jesus is the true son. Israel failed, Christ prevailed. The pronouncement from heaven after the baptism of the approbation, you are my son, in you I am well pleased. That's probably a conflation of two texts, a reference to Psalm 2, verse 7, okay, where we also have the second person used, uh, but more importantly, perhaps, to the Septuagint of Isaiah 42.1. There's an explicit interpretation of the prophecy concerning Jacob there in Isaiah 42.1, uh, which has to be understood as a corporate designation for Israel, my chosen one. ha electos mu. So in other words, when they heard this, they're not thinking individualistically, they're thinking about corporate Israel. The strongest evidence for this is likely also the allusion to Psalm 2, where you have this conflation of Psalm 2.7 um, and in Mark 1.11, uh, as well as Isaiah 42.1. What's the point? The point, this goes back even further behind this to Exodus 4.22.23. Do you remember? That's where we get the adoption categories, basically, in the Old Testament. Let my people go. Let my son go, so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, Pharaoh, so I will kill your firstborn son. This is charged language. Israel failed. Christ prevailed. At this point, it would be very instructive to look at Matthew in the parallel passage, which offers slightly different formulation. But there has been vigorously argued recently that Matthew has in mind Deuteronomy 32, verse 5 and 20, in parallel with this passage, which if you remember uh, there in the Song of Moses, they have acted corruptly toward him. To their shame, they are no longer his children. They are a warped and crooked generation. I will hide my face from them, he said, and see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children who are unfaithful. My point here is these passages address the corporate disobedience of Israel as children. It seems plausible that Matthew has in mind national Israel's sonship. And in contrast to the disobedient nation, baptism marks out Jesus as the obedient son. So where corporate Israel failed, now you have a true son who is fulfilling what corporate Israel, which is merely mankind written in miniature, failed to do. Brandon Crowe has argued his background, his background to sonship from Deuteronomy is not to emphasize status so much as it is to emphasize obligation. In other words, there's a works principle here, and the works principle has to be fulfilled in order to receive the approbation of God. Perhaps we've missed this corporate emphasis at times because of our accent on individual salvation or perhaps in response or overreaction to other brands of theology that want to emphasize the corporate uh, to the injury of the individual. Nevertheless, it's clear that Mark's prologue is emphasizing that Jesus as the Son is fulfilling the sonship of corporate Israel. The matrix of baptismal setting here, coming up out of the water, as Ricky Watts says, the descent of the Spirit, all oh, that the heavens would be rent. 
And the subsequent 40 days in the wilderness seem to be a conscious echo of Israel's Exodus experience. Thus, Jesus is apparently presented, if not explicitly, then implicitly, says Ricky Watts, as the true Israel, close quote. This is spot on in my estimation. In contrast to the disobedience of Israel, Jesus is the one who prevails in his probation, keeping righteousness. He is called, he is proved, he is obedient, and that's the pattern that emerges uh, in Mark as well as in the parallel passages of Matthew and Luke as well. And to get behind even that, I would add that Jesus is also presented as the true Adam. Listen to what Tremper Longman and Dan Reed uh, say. Mark introduces Satan, the archenemy, in his thumbnail sketch of the temptation. Mark 1, verses 12 to 13. The spirit drives him out, ekbalo, Jesus into the desert. Satan tempts him for 40 days, while beasts accompany him, and the angels come to his aid. Old Testament typology is clearly alive here, recalling Israel in the desert. Mark's previous use of the New Exodus typology suggests that his temptation narrative, like that of Matthew and Luke, portrays Jesus as God's faithful son who prevails over temptation where Israel failed. Israel, too, was driven out of Egypt into the desert. Septuagint, Exodus 12, 33 and 39, guess what the verb is? Ekbalo. She spent 40 years and was tested before marching into the land and driving out its occupants. And then the authors add in a footnote, but this typology could well include remembrances of Adam and Eden, which even in its Genesis account seems to be rendered as a paradigm for the experience of Israel, close quote. This is significant theologically because Jesus is the true Israel, the second Adam will fulfill the role of the obedient son. The different outcomes between the first Adam and the second Adam could not be clearer. Christ will earn, did earn, the legal outcome for his people by his own meritorious work, namely entitlement to the world to come. God had been preparing Israel for the realization of what is revealed in the prologue of Mark. Jesus is God's answer to the perfect obedience needed by an obedient son in order to win the approbation of the heavenly father. The desert had been a testing place in which Israel failed time and time again, but now a true son of Israel has emerged in the, wet, in the wilderness. He is the giver of life, Mark 1.8. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He is the one who is humble, Mark 1.9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Augustus Stock says, Jesus' mission is one of enduring God's judgment for the sake of others, culminating in his crucifixion. What has begun in his baptism will be continued throughout his ministry and will be resolved in his death, close quote. People of God, all Israel failed in the wilderness. However, the true son of Israel will prevail as the obedient one immediately after his baptism. Unlike the corporate people of Israel who failed from the beginning and who again and again and again were faithless, Jesus alone was determined and resolute to provide the obedience necessary in the face of the temptation in the wilderness. Let us give thanks. Copyright 2017, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.
You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.